This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, the Digital Education Fellow at Great Ormond Street and your host for today's podcast. I'm so happy today to be joined by Dr Tom Bainton, who is an obstetrics and gynaecology registrar at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. He's also currently completing an MD in endometriosis and is an ambassador for the Endometriosis Foundation. He's going to be talking to me today about dysmenorrhea and endometriosis in young females. So thank you so much, Tom, for coming on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. A pleasure to join you. So firstly, what would you like people to get out of this podcast today? I think a better understanding of, first of all, how common pelvic pain and particularly dysmenorrhea can be in young girls and also how common pathology can be in terms of underlying those symptoms. So being suspicious to look for secondary causes, particularly the thing I'm most interested in, endometriosis. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, they sound like really important learning outcomes. So you mentioned it's common. How common is dysmenorrhea or period pain in young females? So it depends which sort of studies you look at and in terms of classification, how you you define it in terms of what you get for prevalence. But most of the research agrees that upwards of about 90% of girls will experience pain during their period at some point. Of course, pain is a subjective thing and one person's pain is quite different to someone else's experience. And it depends how you ask the question. Are you saying, have you ever had a painful period? Are you in pain right now? Have you been in the pain of your last period? Do you have pain on multiple days when you're in your period? How severe is your pain? So depending on different definitions, you get different numbers. But pain during a period, as simple as that, is very common. What's less common is when this pain significantly impacts on people's lives in terms of missed social events, missed schooling, missed missed family things, and later on into people's lives, missed educational early professional opportunities. Like that's when particularly, I'm not saying things shouldn't be looked into before then, but when it's particularly interrupting your life, that's when underlying causes really do need to be investigated and ruled out. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a really good summary actually, and highlights that it is a really common problem, but there are kind of different levels of the problem, if you like. So what proportion of these patients have endometriosis or another underlying cause for their period pain? So we don't really have very good figures on prevalence in adolescents. The general population prevalence broadly we think is about 10% of reproductive age females. It probably is a little bit higher than that in that we will get on to talking about gold standard diagnosis a little bit later on in terms of getting a diagnosis with surgery is, is quite hard. There's limited resources. There's a high threshold for putting people through surgery due to the risk and recovery involved. But I think broadly speaking, prevalence in adolescence is probably corresponding pretty well with that in, in women slightly older. So around 10%. But in people who do have a diagnostic laparoscopy because of their symptoms, prevalence is far higher, upwards of about two thirds, and that's in adolescence as well. So we are probably underdiagnosing it. It's far more prevalent than we're actually describing or defining. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And is that prevalence of endometriosis or prevalence of any kind of secondary so yeah, underlying cause? Endometriosis. So 10% in, in the adult female population, which we think is probably broadly speaking the same in adolescent girls. 
other underlying pathology is probably less common, about an additional 5 to 7% would be a combination of things like, well, we'll talk about differentials a bit later on, but you go through the usual surgical sieve of infective causes, congenital causes, psychosomatic causes, neurological or muscular causes. So there are a whole number of other things that might be contributing towards it. And most of it, you can try and elicit in the history in terms of when this pain is happening before you even need to go to next steps of investigation. Right. Okay. Yeah. And as you say, we'll hopefully talk a bit more about the differential diagnosis later on. But thinking a bit more about endometriosis itself now, are there any kind of particular risk factors to be aware of? There have been lots of different studies looking at etiology. We don't quite understand how endometriosis gets there, but one of the most popular theories is called retrograde menstruation. So that's effectively menstrual blood rather than all coming out through the cervix, vagina, onto the pads. It's coming up through the fallopian tubes. That's a very common thing. About 90% of women have retrograde menstruation. Not everyone, about 10% we discussed have endometriosis. But if you do subscribe to that theory, then there is lots of evidence to be had in some of the risk factors. So an earlier menarche on average and shorter cycles. This is basically saying that girls are starting their periods earlier and they're having more of them. If you've got a cycle of 24 days versus 40 days, you're probably speaking having two or three more periods in a year. So you've essentially got more opportunity for that retrograde menstruation to happen, more opportunities for endometriotic lesions to set in and develop endometriosis. But of course, there's something more complex going on because that mismatch between the number of women who have retrograde menstruation and the number of women who have endometriosis is so profound. But if you've got more opportunities for that to happen, whatever immunological barrier you've got that allows it to set in essentially has more opportunity to do so. The family history comes into it in a large way as well. So there's no kind of smoking gun, obvious genetic inheritance that we know of yet in endometriosis, but there are lots of associated factors and and genes, both genetic and and epigenetic. And if you do have a first degree relative with endometriosis, you are seven times more likely to have endometriosis yourself. The difficult thing is, historically at least, endometriosis has been very hard to diagnose and people haven't been diagnosed with it. We've normalised the symptoms. There's a huge delay in diagnosis, which is what my research is looking at. So a better way of asking the question is not, have you got a first degree relative with endometriosis, but have you got a first degree relative who's had chronic pain symptoms? Has anyone else in your family had symptoms like you? And if they have, then perhaps that could be endometriosis, in which case it's more likely to be endometriosis in them. I would like to think that in the adolescent age group, certainly as you know, young girls are growing up now, more of their mothers, aunties, etc., are likely to have been diagnosed if they did have symptoms. But historically, when I'm seeing women in their 40s, their parents, even if they had really bad and what to us might now be quite obvious endometriosis that we can diagnose on MRI and all sorts of things, might not have been picked up at the time. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Is there a particular age when it starts? I mean, obviously, it depends on the age of Meneke, but Do you often get symptoms straight away or does it tend to onset a few years after you started your periods? Again, it depends on sort of what you subscribe to in terms of how it gets there. I think we might be able to talk about that a little bit later on. When we talk to most women, and I'm speaking about women I meet in their 20s, 30s or even 40s, they pretty much say they've had it since they were a young girl or they've had symptoms which were above and beyond those of their peers since they were a young girl. They just weren't picked up for various reasons. We're diagnosing it more commonly in women in later adolescence and early 20s. But when you talk to them and say, how long has this been going on? A lot of them say, look, it was from the day I was 13 when I first had my period. So I think it's something that you should be suspicious of right from the beginning. Would you necessarily go down the route saying, look, we need to do a gold standard diagnostic test, which is a a pelvic laparoscopy? Probably not for a 13-year-old girl, but you'd at least be suspicious it could be going on. Yeah, sure. 
Now, obviously, thinking a bit more about presentation and the obvious presentation of endometriosis is painful periods. Can you talk a bit more, though, about the presentation? Are there any other features to be aware of? And are there any features of the pain that are more specific to endometriosis? And yeah, how, how does it usually present? Yeah, so you're actually right. It's commonly dysmenorrhea, but there are lots of other things going on. The pain isn't exclusively during the period itself. It can be in that week before the cycle, less common in the week after the cycle, but you can get a pain that isn't necessarily cyclical. And, and certainly the traditional classical presentation of that cycle pelvic pain isn't true for everyone. I think that's important to mention, but it's uncommon to have endometriosis without at least some element of dysmenorrhea. So it's definitely is a worse thing around the time of the periods. The biggest differentiator in terms of the dysmenorrhea itself is severity. And like I said at the beginning, pain is a very difficult symptom to discern. I don't know how much pain you're in right now. You don't know how much pain I'm in right now. So looking at it from a lifestyle perspective, in terms of this girl's experience, is she missing days off school? Is her pain perceptually worse than that of her peers? Is it refractory to simple analgesia? All those kind of features, you'd be more suspicious of a secondary cause. We talk about it being not just a painful period. It's a, it's a lying on the bathroom floor, shivering in cold sweats type pain. It's, it's a really unpleasant thing. There have been studies in the past looking at patient descriptors of their pain, saying, you know, can we identify any obvious ways that people describe it that, that, that we can think, ah, that's endometriosis rather than another cause? And, and not really is the answer. It's a gnawing, cramping pain, but it can be a sharp pain. It depends a little bit on the degree of the pathology. The cramping is mostly the, the myometrial contraction, so the smooth muscle of the uterus contracting mostly during menstruation. But the pain you're getting in the build-up to that, the pain that you can get that isn't related to your cycle. So there are other triggers like vigorous exercise. If the adolescent girl has started having intercourse, then significant pain during sex. And that can be more of a sharp pain. And that's usually triggered by either adhesions, which have been caused by endometriosis, or ovarian cysts, particularly when they're being moved around. So that's exercise and sex being a trigger. Deeper endometriosis, so an invasive nodule, is less common in young girls. The theory being that pathology just hasn't had time to develop yet after it's been started to be exposed to estrogen at Menarche. But deep endometriosis can certainly present in older adolescents, and it could do in younger girls too. That classically is in the recto-vaginal septum, so it's the area between the vagina and the rectum. And that's significant pain when passing stool, so dyskesia. And that usually is cyclical as well. So in those days before your period and during the period, significant pain passing stool, they often experience constipation at that time as well. Loose stool is more common generally during women's period, but constipation, you might think, mm, is there something else going on? Is this endo? And there's a whole host of other symptoms, which are probably multifactorial. Some would be because you have the pain to start with. Women with endometriosis are more likely to have mental health effects. So depression, anxiety, I think that's true of anyone with any chronic pelvic pain or chronic pain syndrome. Other gastrointestinal upsets, so irregular bowel habits of IBS-type symptoms are quite common, and general fatigue, bloating, nausea. But they aren't such big discriminators, really, between endometriosis pain and, and other causes of pelvic pain, particularly primary dysmenorrhea. But it, those symptoms that come around the period, so the pain beforehand, the pain being triggered by exercise, the pain during intercourse, and particularly the bowel changes and bowel pain that you'd think, hmm, this is endometriosis, and maybe on the slightly more severe end of the spectrum. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful. What are the other potential causes of period pain in this age group? And how can you differentiate between those on clinical history or examination? So the most common would be what we call primary dysmenorrhea. So painful periods without any particular secondary pathology or underlying cause. And that's fairly common, as I said. 
that pain classically gets better with simple analgesia. So taking paracetamol, non-steroidals particularly. If it's refractory to analgesia, then I, I would consider other things. The other slightly less common things, we're looking, going through that surgical sieve like we talked about, the infective causes, so pelvic inflammatory disease, if a girl started having intercourse or if there are any social concerns and suspicions of sexual abuse. Congenital causes are certainly a, a key one to investigate for and rule out. You would be very suspicious for someone with pelvic pain who had primary amenorrhea, worrying about outflow obstruction, so either in perforate hymen, but also more rarely outflow obstruction slightly higher up the genital tract, so transverse vaginal septums, which are harder to pick up and don't have that classic bluish appearance of the hymen and bulging vagina and everything else, or indeed other outflow tract obstructions. So if you've got didelphic uteri, so two uteruses, potentially two cervix as well, two vaginas, you can have outflow tract obstruction on one side. So you might have a girl who's not actually got amenorrhea, but she's still got an element of endometrial tissue that isn't able to be shed and released. It relates to the gastrointestinal tract. It can be chronic constipation. Usually that's pretty easy to pick up in the history, being aware of the, the, the red herring with overflow diarrhea and IBS. We mentioned there are IBS symptoms sometimes seen in endometriosis. You don't classically get that cyclical change, but it could be IBS you're picking up. If you've got other weird and wonderful things, you know, you're passing blood on your stool, you do. Potentially that could be endometriosis if you've got full fitness luminal invasion, but I'd be very surprised if that pathology got to that degree in an adolescent girl. So I think about inflammatory bowel disease as being a far more likely diagnosis, chronic appendicitis, why not? And urinary issues. So what I didn't mention is that girls with endometriosis do often have symptoms of urinary frequency or cystitis, again, following the cycle. So it's usually just before and during menstruation, if they're getting blood in their urine, again, I'd investigate for other things. Is it stones? Is it something else going on? But interstitial cystitis has quite a lot of crossover with, with other pelvic pains and endometriosis. And then there are a number of psychological overlay causes, things like anxiety and depression. Certainly someone who's got suspicions of a history of physical or sexual abuse, pelvic pain is a very common presenting symptom. And I think something that is definitely worth considering is the, the huge number of potential social and psychological factors that contribute towards pelvic pain, or at least people's experience of pelvic pain, particularly when we're saying that's related to menstruation. In certain cultures, periods are taboo and they might not talk about them. There are groups in society who are experiencing significant period poverty. They aren't able to have good access to menstrual products. And then the whole, that week and the period leading up to that week is going to be especially difficult for them. And there might be absenteeism from school and, and social events for those sorts of reasons. Right. Okay. So potentially quite a wide differential. So important to take a, a thorough history to kind yeah, of try and work absolutely. out what's going on. Looking at every aspect, looking at the, the timing of the pain, the duration of the pain, the impact, the severity of the pain and a full systems analysis. Most of those differentials don't follow that, that classic cycle. Endometriosis usually does, not exclusively, but it should be reasonably easy to, to put it up or down your list of differentials on that basis. Yeah, sure. I suppose then you're thinking about getting investigations to help you confirm a suspicion or a diagnosis. What investigations would be first line in assessing an adolescent female with pelvic pain or with, with period pain? Yeah, so I think before going down the route of the scans and things like that, a, a proper and thorough examination would be useful. And you base your examination on the context and you know, how old is the girl? Is she sexually active or not? But definitely abdominal palpation to pick up any obvious weird and wonderful masses. We didn't mention you know, ovarian cysts are potential other differentials so non-endometriotic ovarian cysts. And they can sometimes be concerning cysts in young girls. Very rare, but they can be. So a, a full examination that would also help identify any um, muscular trigger points 
other organomegaly and things. And then you're looking at an abdominal and pelvic ultrasound scan as really being able to pinpoint anything you're really suspicious about in terms of ovarian cysts, other adnexal masses. And it can tell us reasonable things about congenital uterine anomalies. Although if you do think there's a uterine anomaly or a genital tract anomaly, MRI is, is far better at picking that up. We usually do 3D modeling on MRI scan. You can do an ultrasound scan, but in a young girl, it's difficult without doing a transvaginal scan. But ultrasound, just abdominal and pelvic ultrasound, transabdominal would be probably your first line investigation. Transvaginal, if the patient is appropriate for that, would give you a little bit more information. MRI, if you're then going on to looking either at congenital anomalies or a suspicion of deep endometriosis. So if you've got that uterosacral thickening, if you've got that nexal mass on ultrasound scan, you're thinking we might need to get out of the ridge of surgery. That would probably be done at a, at a sort of gynecological secondary or tertiary level rather than with pediatrics, but an MRI would definitely be useful. So you mentioned right at the start that actually traditionally diagnostic laparoscopy is seen as the gold standard diagnostic investigation for endometriosis. But actually also at the same time, it's not something that you often do, particularly in younger girls and adolescents. So can you tell me a bit more about how practically you could make a diagnosis of endometriosis in this group of patients? So although it's true to say that diagnostic laparoscopy is really the only way to certainly rule out disease, we're moving towards more of an emphasis in making a clinical diagnosis. And it might be a clinical diagnosis with lots of evidence. You might have ultrasound evidence of endometrioma. And we know that ultrasound has a very good sensitivity and specificity for detecting an endometrioma. Or indeed, we've got MRI saying deep disease looked at by uh, an experienced radiologist, then you're very hard pushed to say this isn't endometriosis. So absolutely, you, you've got your diagnostic confirmation. But in those patients who haven't got that confirmation on imaging, provided you have symptomatology suggesting endometriosis from all the things we talked about, there might be other points in the clinical history, family history, et cetera. It's entirely reasonable to say, look, our working clinical diagnosis is endometriosis and we can treat according to that without saying, absolutely, we have to do a laparoscopy. We have to get diagnostic confirmation on histopathology. And, and that's a newer thing. So although laparoscopy Really, we're going to get our absolute confirmation, certainly of negative disease state. We can talk about endometriosis clinical diagnosis far earlier in that patient journey. Right. Okay. And then what would you expect to see on laparoscopy? You see these classic lesions that we see in endometriosis. The classic lesion appearance is your dull powder burn spot, your bluish blackish little spot on the peritoneal surface. In younger girls, it doesn't always look like that. And you can get an appearance of white endometriosis, which just looks like little vesicles and cystic lesions, or red endometriosis, which is the early inflammatory and, and hemorrhagic stage. So it doesn't always look like the, the classic textbook appearance. And even experienced gynecologists don't get things right when they're looking. So biopsying anything and everything that looks at all suspicious on the peritoneal surface, we definitely recommend. So that's the gold standard. But but ultimately, like we discussed right at the beginning, putting through a young girl through what would almost certainly be the first surgery she's had in her life, a general anaesthetic, stay in hospital until worry for the parents and everything else. Do you necessarily want to do that at such an early stage? But it's important to say that without even that gold standard, I think bringing up endometriosis as a strong differential early on in the conversation and saying, we haven't got this 100% confirmation because in order to do it, we have to remove it and look at it under the microscope. But we can say this is a highly likely working differential diagnosis and we can treat going down that track. So when and if 
treatment fails in future, or you think actually the benefit and, and risk of surgery is appropriate, we can do it. And certainly when that young girl is starting her reproductive life and starting to think about her family, she knows that she's going to have early scans because it worries about ectopic pregnancies. She's not going to try for fertility for two years, knowing that, oh my goodness, I might have endometriosis, which can, for many reasons, delay that. So it can be looked into far more expediently later on. Right. Okay. So it can kind of help you manage expectations down the line, just if somebody is aware of the possibility. Absolutely. Yeah. And it changes the complexion of the of the condition as well. Pelvic pain and chronic pain, any chronic pain syndrome is really difficult to manage. And there are lots of different treatments for it, which I'm sure we'll talk about from simple analgesia, neuropathic, hormonal, surgical, but psychological treatments play a very big role. And just having a diagnosis, confirming what it is that's going on and recognizing that it is not in the patient's head, they haven't made it up. It's not, you know, they're not weird. This is something organic that's going on has untold benefits, not so much, you know, day to day, they might still be in as much pain, but in terms of how they're able to rationalize it and, and move on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. So can we talk a little bit more about management? Because obviously one of the benefits of considering endometriosis as a diagnosis is being able to institute some management and, and pain relief. What are the management options for young females with dysmenorrhea or endometriosis? Yeah, first of all, recognizing that it is uh, a significant symptom and it's not a normal symptom. So saying, you know, that severe dysmenorrhea, that pain that's interrupting their life in whatever way it is, is not a normal thing. I think it's, like I said, it's getting onto was a differential. It's not a positive sort of medical management, but it, it might well help their symptoms or help their comprehension of it. Always treat the pain. So it's pain is not something that people have to suffer with. It serves no reasonable purpose. So non-steroidal analgesia is probably going to provide the biggest benefit in terms of reducing that cramping contraction you have in the myometrium with endo. I haven't actually mentioned already something else called adenomyosis, which we only very briefly need to talk about. Essentially very similar pathology, except rather than the endometrial tissue, the glands and strength, rather than being outside the uterus, it's within the muscle of the uterus itself. And it does cause severe dysmenorrhea, even in the absence of endo, but essentially treatment's probably the same in a young girl. So non-steroidal is very good, paracetamol is very good. There's lots of evidence to show that if you just prescribe these pain relief, patients don't take them regularly, they don't take them particularly well. So describing a little bit more about how they work, how it actually reduces the nasty, noxious stimuli that caused the pain in the first place. Because people are always reticent, I think you'd agree, to take something that's a sticking plaster. I don't want to just cover up this pain. I want to treat the root cause of it. But if the root cause is prostaglandin release, myometrial vasoconstriction in, in, in the smooth muscle of the uterus, you can actually resolve that with a, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or, or a COX-2 inhibitor. So describing what it does is useful and telling them how to take it as well. Most people who are prescribed an analgesic don't take it often enough and don't take the correct dose. And also using it prophylactically. So dosing up before you know that pain is starting is incredibly beneficial. When we do hysteroscopies on women and we're looking inside the uterus, it's going to cause exactly the same thing. It causes spasm and cramping of the myometrium. So we say one hour before or two hours before, take a dose of ibuprofen and paracetamol because we know it's going to be painful. If you know that period's about to start, then do start the medication beforehand, take it regularly throughout the whole period. But yeah, emphasize that there is something to be done about it. It's actually helping the root cause of the pathology. And that will probably help the vast majority of girls with primary dysmenorrhea pretty much solve the problem. If you're still getting pain after that, then 
that's like we talked about, you, you're thinking about secondary problems. Endometriosis is driven primarily by estrogen. That's why it follows the hormonal cycle. And the endometriotic lesions themselves are relatively resistant to progesterone. If you test serum estrogen and progesterone, it will be exactly the same in someone with endo and without endo, but it's how those lesions respond to it. So you get that severe pain when the progesterone is all dropping off just before your period. So that progesterone withdrawal makes all the lesions active and inflammatory. So the mainstay of treatment is either increased progesterone or, or decrease estrogen. So you can use good old combined hormonal contraception. You think, well, hold on, why are you giving estrogen and progesterone to someone when you want to reduce the estrogen? But actually the combined hormonal contraceptive has a, a nice level. You can't see me on the podcast drawing a nice and flat line, but a nice level level of estrogen and progesterone rather than the big peaks and troughs you get in a normal cycle. Or you add more progesterone to the progesterone only pills. Of course, you have to look at your UK medicines eligibility criteria before starting any contraceptive, but in most young girls, either would be appropriate. And in some adolescents, it might be appropriate to consider things like the Mirena coil. The Mirena is particularly good at helping those the pure menstrual symptoms. The Mirena coil is a, a very nice and well-tolerated progestogen because it's just absorbed locally. So the progesterone is levonorgestrel, is uh, eluted by the coil, it's absorbed into the endometrium, the myometrium, and it is absorbed beyond that. But people who are potentially more sensitive to progestogens, those who might experience symptoms of PMS, for example, or those who are on either combined or progesterone contraception who might have mild side effects like getting hot flushes, headaches, mood changes, skin changes, etc. Even in adolescence, it's something that I think you should discuss. A myrinicor could be a really good solution for them. It's extra useful if the girl has heavy periods because it's good treatment for that. And indeed, if she's seeking contraception. So I think if she's sexually active and seeking contraception, then you've got a, a kind of triple whammy of, of, of effective treatment. But describe why you're doing it. Describe how it works. And again, don't let them imagine this as being a sticking plaster treatment because we're actually hoping to stop endometriosis at the root cause. There aren't huge amounts of evidence looking at progression of endometriosis and recurrence of endometriosis, but broadly speaking, hormonal medication, we believe, does slow down endometriosis progression and reduce recurrence after any treatment. So it might be appropriate for a young girl to continue to take the contraceptive pill until she's seeking fertility. Of course, you've then got a few questions about what you do at that point, but then they would most likely be out the hands of pediatricians. Important to mention another aspect of treatment, which is the, the whole sort of complementary therapy, other aspects. So there were some studies looking at weight loss and endometriosis. Uh, regular exercise and reduction of weight helps with pelvic pain symptoms, probably multifactorial reasons for that. Heat can also be effective. So using heat pads, hot water bottles, baths, those kinds of things, being very aware that you can cause longstanding and debilitating rashes with that, so erythema and epinae from having a, a heat pad. So you know, description of how you use it, how you use it carefully, but using heat has shown to be almost as effective as, as, as simple analgesia, but you can use both together. Why not? Great. Okay. And then what about other complementary therapies? So mm. for example, I know that they now have a TENS machine that's specifically marketed for period pain. Is there any evidence for those treatments? Yeah, absolutely. There's huge amounts of anecdotal evidence, certainly. And a lot of people do find them useful. People have used TENS machines for all sorts of things. You might see people use them in labor. You might see people use them with chronic muscle disease, other musculoskeletal complaints, back pain, etc. And they do use them in endometriosis and they are very successful. I don't actually know of any randomized clinical studies looking at the use of TENS machine versus other therapies, but it's not something I'd recommend against. If a patient's tried it, if it's worked for them, absolutely fine and carry on. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to ask a bit more about what you were saying with the hormonal treatments potentially slowing progression. Is there evidence that starting these treatments earlier, so in 
younger adolescents will actually have a long-term prognostic benefit because you're preventing the endometriosis from kind of developing quite so much? The question was, is there evidence? And the answer is no, because we don't have those long-term cross-sectional studies looking at those sorts of things. And in actual fact, taking the pill early in life is a risk factor for endometriosis. That's almost certainly because those girls have been prescribed the pill early in life because they've been in pain because they've had endometriosis since the day the period started. So it's a difficult one to answer. But probably, yes, the deep lesions of endometriosis develop because of chronic injury and repair. So you've got this endometriosis glands and stroma found outside the endometrium, which every time you get withdrawn of progesterone towards the end of the cycle is shedding, causing bleeding, causing fibroblastic change, causing smooth muscle metaplasia in the area around it, causing neovascularization and invasion of local pelvic nerves. And all of that is progressive. That's happening every single cycle. And that builds up over time. And you get a lesion the size of the golf ball in between your vagina and your rectum, which is really complex to remove surgically and really horribly painful. That doesn't come out of nowhere. If you're suppressing the cycle, then that wouldn't be allowed to happen. It's a very attractive proposition. Should that mean every single girl who has painful periods should be recommended they take the pill forever until they want a baby? Well, probably not, because most people who have superficial endometriosis will never go on to develop deep disease. We don't really understand the exact etiology of how this deep disease sets in. And in actual fact, if you look at it in terms of progression when you're an adult, at least, most of the endometriosis we diagnose doesn't change. So probably speaking, it stays the same stage and sites it was at the day it was diagnosed. And we weirdly sometimes see deep disease in 18-year-old girls and, and we see you know superficial lesions in someone in their late 40s. But the deep disease still doesn't come out of anywhere. So I, I would agree that taking hormone suppression probably does reduce the rate of progression, reduce the severity or the potential severity that endometriosis can come. Surgical treatment could help. So operating on girls and excising the disease at a young age could certainly help. We, we didn't talk about one of the other potential theories about how it gets there. So aside from retrograde menstruation, there's theories about malarian tract depositions. Your malarian tract forms, you probably remember, or pediatricians particularly should remember from their embryology, how the malarian tract starts up and develops with the renal tracts and moves down through into the pelvis and develops your pelvic organs, but it leaves little deposits of embryonic stem cells along the way, which could go on to develop endometriosis. So if you can excise them at an early stage, then you're stopping them potentially progressing later on. And can you just give a brief overview of the surgical management? When we're looking at treatment of endosurgically, we've got two options. We can either ablate it or excise it. Probably speaking for pain control, there's not that much difference in one or the other. Certainly deep disease does need to be excised, but superficial, you can do either. And actually, when we look at the long-term evidence, there isn't a huge amount that says surgical treatment of a superficial disease, at least, does improve long-term outcomes. And recurrence of endometriosis is sadly something that we see more commonly than we'd like. The difficulty with all these things is when we're looking back, certainly with retrospective data, surgical technique might well have developed over the years. And who knows what the future might hold? There are surgeons now doing a wide local excision of peritoneal disease. We might find that has a lower risk of recurrence and greater benefit for symptom control over the long term. And at what point should you start to consider surgical management? So for a general paediatrician, at what point should they be thinking potentially about a referral to a gynaecologist for further management? So it would be very individualised. It would depend ultimately on the, the, the patient's wishes and to extend their parents' wishes, depending on the age of the child and everything else. But I think if the first line treatments with simple analgesia and hormonal treatments are refractory, if it's still causing a significant impact on the patient's life, then you would definitely want an opinion. Referral and waiting for gynecological investigation shouldn't delay doing those early things. And if those early things have worked, fantastic, you can still have the opinion of a gynecologist later on, he might want to do a transvaginal scan, they might want to do an MRI scan. 
but they can talk also about the, the risks and benefits of doing surgery where it's appropriate for them at that time. And that'll be very individualized according to the, the patient. It'll be individualized according to what pathology is. If there is more significant endometriosis, so you've got a deep nodule, which is said are much less likely in young girls, but if you have, or you've got a, a cyst on the ovary, what we call an endometrioma, that's not going to go anywhere. As much hormonal treatment in the world, you might be able to hold the symptoms at bay, but it's not going to go anywhere. It's a complex discussion about whether you do surgery or not. But broadly speaking, if surgery is an option for them, at some point, or they're going to need it at some point in their life, why not do it earlier, accepting that there are potential downsides on doing surgery in very young girls. So that discussion should be had. Age in, it, in and of itself should not be a limiting factor in having that discussion. It should be the same conversation you have with anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. That's been a really excellent overview of period pain and of endometriosis. Moving on now, we tend to finish with our standard quickfire questions that we ask to everybody on the podcast. Now, our first question is normally aimed at paediatricians, and it's about what comes up in the paediatric exam. And obviously, as a gynecologist, we don't expect you to pretend a knowledge of the paediatrics exam that you don't have. So I've changed that question slightly to say, as a gynecologist, what would you want a paediatrician to know about this subject? So what would you ask them in an exam to kind of test their knowledge? I would want them to know about the prevalence and importance of secondary causes of dysmenorrhea. So the fact that although dysmenorrhea is common, dysmenorrhea that's persistent, severe, debilitating, interrupting a girl's life does require further investigation and treatment. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really important. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend to listeners that might want to find out more, either about managing dysmenorrhea or indeed about endometriosis? There are indeed. In terms of signposting patients, first of all, I think directing towards some reliable information from the large endometriosis charity. So you've already mentioned Endometriosis Foundation and indeed Endometriosis UK, both of which are developed and run by incredibly passionate people who have endometriosis themselves. And I can say that I know all of them have suffered from endometriosis from a very early age, so that they're, they're very keen on getting it out early on and having programs where they're going to schools talking about it and giving information for young girls. For the doctors, the European Society of, of Reproductive Health guidelines, which were updated in 2022, are very good on endometriosis. And they do have sections on investigation and treatment in adolescence. Similarly, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology have their own guidance. I don't believe the Royal College of Ops and Gynae has specific guidance on it, but the European one is by far and away the most comprehensive. Okay, fantastic. Finally, what would be your three takeaway learning points from the podcast today? What would you like people to remember? That endometriosis and secondary causes of, of, of pelvic pain are common and they should have been investigated and treated. That you can make a diagnosis, a strong differential clinical diagnosis without going to surgery and telling the patient, telling the parents, I think this is going on, this is what it is and this is what we can do about it, even if we don't need to do surgery right now, is really important and really useful. And the third one, I think, would be emphasizing that there, there is hope and there are reasonable treatments. A lot of girls with endometriosis have had really difficult journeys to diagnosis. The average diagnostic delay in the UK is eight years. Two thirds of women with endometriosis see their GP more than 10 times with the same symptoms before getting a diagnosis. And that has to change. A lot of that's about normalization of symptoms. It's about misunderstanding of the risk factors. And it's about fear of referral and, and having surgery at a young age. And a lot of that needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important take-home message. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming and speaking to me today, Tom, and for a really excellent summary. 
Not at all. No, pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRC PCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.